Welcome, everyone, to the Predictably Treacherous podcast. Today's episode, we're looking at the films of Empire International Pictures. So Empire International Pictures was an American small-scale theatrical distribution company that was formed in 1983 by Charles Band, largely as a response to Band's dissatisfaction with how his films were being distributed by motion picture companies while he was making films under the banner of Charles Band International Productions. So the company produced and distributed a number of low-budget horror and fantasy feature films, including Trancers, The Dungeon Master, Reanimator, From Beyond, Dolls, Terror Vision, Prison, Troll, Ghoulies, and many, many more. The early years of Empire International Pictures, so this is 1983 to 1984, this is straight from Wikipedia, Sensing the emerging theatrical market for independently produced horror and science fiction films, producer Charles Band opted to create a mini-studio that rivaled the studio system of the major Hollywood companies. The first mention of the name Empire Pictures came in May 1983 at Cannes, when Band sought funding for Parasite 2, the proposed sequel to his successful Parasite film from the previous year. The initial Empire Pictures productions included Sword Kill, a.k.a. Ghost Warrior, and The Dungeon Master, which both received limited theatrical releases in 1984. Okay, so the years 1985 and 1986, the so-called box office success years. Again, from Wikipedia. Empire's first box office success came in early 1985 with the release of Ghoulies, Released in several major markets, the film had grossed close to $3.5 million by February 1985. And upon release in New York City, the film grossed over $1 million in that city alone in its first weekend. This theatrical success paved the way for the company to showcase future cult hits Trancers and Reanimator in theaters. Now flush with cash, Band ended up purchasing... I'm going to butcher the name. It's a castle in, in, a, in an Italian town... It says Castello de Giove, and it's in a it's a 12th century ca- 12th century castle located in a town called Giove, Italy. <laughs> Sorry, I probably got that wrong. The intention was to use the castle as a European base of operations and a filming location. And during this time, Band also purchased Dino De Laurentiis Cinematografia, the studio founded by Dino De Laurentiis in. Uh, 1946, and he purchased that for an alleged $20 million. 1986 saw the company's biggest output in terms of theatrical releases with the uh, Eliminators, From Beyond, Terror Vision, and Troll. The latter proved to be Empire's biggest success that year, grossing nearly $5.5 million when released in nearly 1,000 theaters. Okay, 1987 to 1989 the bankruptcy period. With a studio secured in Italy in 1987 saw the company significantly increase the amount of production, Empire showed up at the American film market in February 1987, touting 36 new releases to offer companies. Titles produced during this time included Dolls, Ghoulies 2, Prison, and Robot Chocks. Empire also narrowed its focus on theatrical product after entering into a distribution agreement with Vestron Video. Empire Pictures began to collapse in mid-1988 due to financial problems and long-term debt obligations to credit Leonis. Once it became clear that Empire could not last, the company was seized by the bank and taken over by Epic Entertainment, later Epic Productions, in May 1988. This led to in-production titles such as Stuart Gordon's Robot Jocks, Peter Manugian's Arena, and David Schmoller's Catacombs to be delayed and released by several years. The following fall of the same year, Band formed another company, Full Moon Entertainment, which also specializes in horror fantasy genre films. The studio's rise and subsequent fall are covered in the book Empire of the Bees, the Mad Movie World of Charles Band, written by Dave J., Torsten Dewey, and Nathan Shumate. The story is also the subject of the upcoming documentary, Celluloid Wizards in the Video Wasteland by Daniel Griffith. 
As of 2017, MGM via Polygram Entertainment is the current owner of the majority of the Empire Pictures Library. Here's a little bit of background of uh, Charles Band from his website, which is uh, charlesband.com. So with over 50 years, I'm just quoting straight from the website, with over 50 years in the business and over 300 feature films under his belt, producer, director, and founder and CEO of Full Moon Features, Charles Band shows no signs of slowing down. In 1975, Band produced his first picture, the cult classic horror movie, Mansion of the Doomed. Within a few years, he was fast becoming a rising star in Hollywood, producing and directing now-iconic films starring such revered names as John Carradine, Jose Ferrer, Sue Lyon, Christopher Lee, and Roddy McDowell. In 1978, Band formed Meta Home Entertainment, the first independent home video distribution company in North America. Meta was among the first companies to distribute films to the home video market on the Betamax format and found success with a wide variety of titles ranging from horror movies such as John Carpenter's Halloween to family entertainment like the animated Peanut specials and many, many more. Band went on to form Wizard Video in 1981. The company was a pioneer in the home video market and was the original video distributor for classic horror movies like The Texas Chainsaw Massacre, I Spit on Your Grave, and Lucio Fulci's Zombie to obscure European films from auteurs like Jess Franco and Gene Rollin. A forward-thinking company, Wizard foresaw the potential for massive growth in home video gaming and produced adaptations of The Texas Chainsaw Massacre and Halloween for the Atari 2600, which were in effect the very first horror console video games ever released. Band continued to produce and direct his own films during this era, including the 3D horror movie Parasite, which featured actress Demi Moore in her first starring role. The webpage continues. In 1983, Band founded Empire Pictures Entertainment. Based in Los Angeles, the film production company was highly uh, prosperous throughout the 80s and produced as many as 12 theatrical features a year. Empire Pictures Entertainment was responsible for some of the biggest cult hits of the 80s, including Ghoulies, Reanimator, From Beyond, Troll, and Robot Jocks. Band continued his track record of discovering untapped talent during this time, casting such future stars as Helen Hunt, Viggo Mortensen, Julia Louis-Dreyfus, Mariska Hargitay, and many more. At the end of the decade, Charles Band pioneered the independent direct-to-video feature with the formation of Full Moon Entertainment, 1989, and with it, the creation of Puppet Master, which has gone on to become the most successful direct-to-video film series of all time. Band soon teamed with Paramount Pictures and Pioneer Home Entertainment for direct-to-video releases on VHS and Laserdisc. The Video Zone featurettes at the end of Full Moon's movies, which showed how each film was made, presaged and anticipated the behind-the-scenes bonus content that is now considered a standard feature among contemporary DVDs and Blu-ray discs. With upwards of 20 releases per year, Band built a reputation as a versatile and frequent director of entertaining low-budget horror, sci-fi, and fantasy films. Band's Full Moon Entertainment, later renamed Full Moon Features, created many well-known video franchises throughout the 90s and into the new millennium. Aside from its extremely popular Puppet Master series, Full Moon continued the Trancer series starring Helen Hunt and Tim Thomerson, the Subspecies series, shot on location in Transylvania, the Bizarre Evil Bong series featuring Tommy Chong, and the infamous Ginger Dead Man series starring Gary Busey. During this period, Band worked with many talents who would later achieve greater fame in the industry like Seth Green, Jackie Earl Haley, and David S. Goyer, to name a few. In addition to his relentless filming schedule, Charles Band continued to be very active in creating and marketing a wide variety of merchandise, including t-shirts, action figures, resin statues, and uh, 
one-to-one scale replicas of Full Moon's better-known puppets and dolls and publishing the horror movie magazine Delirium. Most recently, Charles Band has taken another step into the future with the creation of Full Moon Features, this pioneering video streaming service, a successor to the company's earlier Full Moon streaming channel, allows subscribers from all over the world to watch Full Moon films from the comfort of their computer or other internet-ready device. With a fully functional app available on virtually every platform, Full Moon Features adds new movies on a weekly basis from under Band's established Full Moon banner, as well as cult film imprints like Blue Underground, Something Weird, video, and many, many more. In 2019, Full Moon launched their most ambitious project to date with Deadly Ten, in which 10 new feature films were produced back-to-back all over the world with completely live-streamed shoots airing on www.deadly10.com. Each film had its world premiere on Full Moon Features as well as Full Moon, Amazon Channel, and other digital outlets. After decades of experience in the entertainment industry, Charles Band has cemented his legacy as a progressive businessman, prolific filmmaker, and cult movie icon. So as I mentioned before, there is a, an upcoming documentary, and it's called Celluloid Wizards in the Video Wasteland, The Saga of Empire Pictures. And it's currently in post-production, so it's not yet available. Um, I love these kind of documentaries. Uh, I watched another couple like this, Blood, Boobs, and Beast, and it's a 2007 documentary about Don Doler, and he's an independent filmmaker. So Don Doler and Time Warp Films, which is his production company. And of course, there's uh, Electric Boogaloo, the Wild Untold Story of Canon Films, which is a 2014 documentary about Golan and Globus and Canon Films and all the hits and stuff. It's a wonderful doc. Another one is uh, Not Quite Hollywood, which is a 2008 documentary about the uh, Australian cinema. Um, they, have, they have a lot of wacky cinema that came out in the 70s and and whatnot. Another one that I really enjoyed in this vein was um, 2014 documentary That Guy Dick Miller, which is about the career of longtime character, um, you know, character actor, extra bit part guy, Dick Miller, who has appeared in apparently over 200 films uh, over six decades. He appeared in, I think it's either every Roger Corman picture, or I don't know, it was for a stretch, like every one of his pictures or something. Um, You know, like 40 plus Roger Corman pictures. So I'm going to make this, uh, I don't know, five or six part series of episodes, similar to what I've done in the past with um, the Mill Creek Sci-Fi Collection, which I've broken into five parts, and I'm on part three of that now, or part four, or something like that. Um, Twilight Zone, I've been watching a season at a time and doing an episode on it, um, as well as the canon, the canon films. Um, I think I'm on part three of that now. I'm going to do like six or seven parts for that as well. So likewise for this, we're going to do uh, Empire International Pictures, um, I think I have about 30 of the titles, so we'll probably do about four or five episodes to get through all the titles. Okay, so bear with me here. I'm going to read off all the titles that I have, and um, we'll probably cover about six or seven in this episode, but here they all are. The Alchemist, 1983. The Dungeon Master, 1984. Ghost Warrior, 1984. Trancers, 1984. Ghoulies, 1985. Reanimator, 1985. Savage Island, 1985. Underworld, 1985. Zone Troopers, 1985. Breeders, 1986. Crawl Space, 1986. 
Eliminators, 1986. Rawhead Rex, 1986. Robot Holocaust, 1986. Troll, 1986. Terror Vision, 1986. Vicious Lips, 1986. The Caller, 1987. Enemy Territory, 1987. Ghoulies 2, 1987. Prison, 1987. Assault of the Killer Bimbos, 1988. Buy and Sell, 1988. Catacombs, 1988. Cellar Dweller, 1988. Sorority Babes in the Slimeball Bowl Arama. 1988, Arena, 1989, Deadly Weapon, 1989. So that is uh, 28 films. So I think it makes sense to do seven episodes, uh, seven movies per episode. And um, so part one, we're going to look at The Alchemist, The Dungeon Master, Ghost Warrior, Trancers, Ghoulies, Savage Island, and Zone Troopers. Let's get to it. This animal act, you will forever remain an animal, forced to kill to live. This is my curse for eternity. Okay, so first movie, we have The Alchemist from 1983. Starring Robert Ginty, Lucinda Dooling, John Sandiford. I don't know any of these people. Um, And again, that was from 1983. Although the release date here says May 31st, 1985. So um, I'm not sure about that. But I think it's it's listed as 1983, like on Wikipedia and whatnot. Runtime, 86 minutes. So here's a breakdown from Wikipedia. In 1955, young waitress Lenora, Lucinda Dooling, finds herself inexplicably driving down the California highway to an unknown destination. This doesn't bode well for Cam, John Sandiford, the hitchhiker she picked up, because he has to endure her somnambulist driving. That's uh, sleepwalking. Um, The duo eventually end up at a gravesite in the woods and meet alchemist Aaron, Robert Ginty, who is just as shocked to see them as Lenora appears to be the reincarnation of his wife who was murdered nearly a hundred years earlier. Okay, so what's sort of happening in this one? Um, actually, so the opening scene, there's a, there's a, it's like a dreamlike um, place. There's, there's someone's dreaming it, right? So there's a dreamlike scene with a woman walking in a forest, and this guy grabs her. And then another guy tries to fight with the guy who grabs her. So he's trying to like rescue the girl. And in the struggle, um, the, the guy who's trying to rescue the girl accidentally stabs the girl. And then the, the guy who would grab the girl, he puts a curse on the guy who was trying to rescue the girl. And the curse is it condemns the guy to being an animal and having to kill to live is the quote. Um, And shortly afterwards, he begins to transform into an animal. So now fast forward to 1955. There's a woman driving along a highway, and she picks up a hitchhiker. So the woman has visions of the opening scene. So when she's having the visions, it's almost like um, daydreams. This is the the sleepwalking that was described in the the description in Wikipedia. It's like... um, Sleep driving, I guess. Um, so she has, yeah, she has visions of that opening scene. And she doesn't know what it is or what it's about. And then meanwhile, there's an old woman in a cabin. And she's performing some ritual. And she's trying to turn an animal into a man. And it's the the man who was turned into an animal in the opening scene. Um, she's trying to turn him back into a man. Now, the woman who was driving the car is compelled to drive to a cemetery where she meets the man from the vision. So the man who was just transformed back into a man from an animal. Um, so they all go back to the, the cabin with the old woman. 
And then the old woman and the man who was just turned into a man from an animal, they fill in the woman and the hitchhiker on all the details. So the details are um, Delgado was um, the alchemist guy. He fell in love with Anna, um, which is the woman from the, the dream, and he put a spell on her. And then Aaron, that's the rescuer, he tried to save Anna, um, and that's when he accidentally killed her. Um, and then the Delgado guy, he transformed Aaron into an animal, so he'd have to spend eternity hunting to live. Now, Lenora and Cam, the modern girl and the hitchhiker, they leave in a car. Um, so their car, they seem to have a different car. I don't really know what happened there exactly. But anyways, they leave the cabin. They're kind of freaked out, so they leave the cabin. But as they leave in the car, um, all these demons come out of a portal and the demons start to attack their car. And then suddenly they, um, they drive up to the portal it's, I guess, where the gravesite was, where they met the, the man. Um, anyways, and uh, anyways, they go inside the portal, and this is basically the big showdown. So when they go inside the portal, they're entering the world or the time when, when the dream was occurring. So the dream-like scene. So the, basically, they get to reenact, or not reenact, but to relive the dream-like scene from the beginning. And what happens, is, of course, is that this time... Uh, Aaron is able to kill Delgado, and when he does, I guess that releases him from his spell, and then he immediately like melts, I guess because he's he's it's like a hundred years later. So when he's released from the spell, he no longer is subject to living forever. So he's he's really old and he dies, and then that's it. I guess they're all released from the curse. So I don't know. I don't have much to say about this one. It's I didn't really like it. You could skip this one. Hi, Cal. Good evening, Carl. How did the repairs go? Oh, they went fine. Yeah, it's coming too easy. Well, how was my time? Three minutes over yesterday. Yeah, I guess I got a lot on my mind. Account overdrawn. Yeah, I know. I'll take care of it in the morning. So, next one up The Dungeon Master, 1984. Directed by, okay, wait for it. There are seven directors Dave Allen, Charles Band, John Carl Buschler, Stephen Ford, Peter Manugian, Ted Nicolau, Rosemary Turco. Okay, that sounds really weird, but there are seven directors. Um, we'll, we'll, we'll get to why there are seven directors, it's going to make sense. Um, actors so Jeffrey Byron, Richard Mole. Is Bull Shannon from Night Court and uh, Leslie Wing. Um, release date August 24th, 1984, 73 minutes. So here's what we get from Wikipedia on this one. So The Dungeon Master, originally it was titled uh, Rage War, um, is a 1984 American anthology fantasy film produced by Charles Band and is split up into seven distinct story segments each written and directed by a different person. Um, the film's theme was influenced by the popularity of Disney's 1982 film Tron and the role-playing game Dungeons & Dragons. And this is interesting. So principal photography began in 1983, but the film was not completed until 1984. That's not what was interesting. This is what was interesting. The film features an appearance by the heavy metal band Wasp, that's W-A-S-P. The film is known for the line of dialogue, I reject your reality and I substitute my own. Uh, a sequel to the movie was shot and edited in 1988, but never completed. Yeah, I don't remember. Um, I mean, I watched this a, a few weeks ago now, so I don't remember that exact line. I should go back and check that out. Um, of course, I remember the scene with the band. It's pretty cool. Here's what Wikipedia had to say about the plot. Paul Bradford is a skilled computer programmer who lives with his girlfriend, Gwen, and Excalibrate, a quasi-sentient personal computer that Paul programmed and which he interacts with via a neural interface. 
Gwen is jealous of Paul's unusually close relationship with Excalibrate, to whom Paul has given a female voice and fears that their relationship will be destroyed by Paul's reliance on Excalibrate for his various day-to-day activities. One night, Paul and Gwen are both transported to a hellish realm presided over by Mestima, that's Richard Mole, an ancient demonic sorcerer who has spent millennia seeking a worthy opponent with whom to do battle. Having long defeated his enemies with magic, Mestima has become intrigued with technology and wishes to pit his skills against Paul's with the winner claiming Gwen, arming Paul with a portable version of Excalibrate, which takes the form of a computerized wristband, Mestima begins transporting Paul into a variety of scenarios in which he must defeat various opponents. Most of the challenges involve Paul using his Excalibrate wristband to shoot people, monsters, and objects with laser beams. After Paul completes Mestima's various challenges, the two engage in a final battle which takes the form of a fist fight in which Paul kills Mestima by throwing him into a pit of lava. After Mestima dies... Paul and Gwen are transported back to their house where Gwen expresses her acceptance of Excalibrate and suggests that she and Paul get married. Yeah, so this one, it's pretty cool. Um, you know, you can watch this one once. It's um, its a fun film. It doesn't do a lot for me, uh, but if you like this sort of fantasy stuff, um, like this specifically... Uh, like the, the the plot summary said there, it's kind of based on like Dungeons and Dragons and there's a sorcerer guy and it's kind of fun for that. Um, and I've definitely not seen another movie like this. And it's an anthology, so there's seven different scenarios basically that uh, the main character goes into and he has to rescue his girl in each of the scenarios. Um, so it's kind of fun and it zips along pretty quickly. Like the movie's not very long. It's kind of wild. And it's early 80s, right? So he's got the computer with the female voice. And it's sort of like um, foreshadowing uh, what would come in the future, like with, you know, Siri and uh, whatever the other ones are called. What's Siri the Apple one? What's the other ones? Oh, Alexa, Amazon Alexa. And then uh, Cortana, of course. I'm a Microsoft guy, so, you know, well, I don't want to say I'm a Microsoft guy. I use Microsoft so um, I'm used to Cortana, but um, actually the Google one, though, um, I'm used to Google as well because, you know, you get Google Home. Okay, Google, that sort of stuff. Um, they always use a female voice. Anyway, same idea. He's He always talks to his computer in this movie. It's sort of interesting when you think about it. Like, it really predicted what would happen in the future. Yeah, he does. It, it says that um, he basically has a wristband, and it he uses it as a laser beam. To, that's like every one of them. He just fires lasers out of his wristband, um, but it's not bad. It's it's anyways. It's a fun little film. Totally worth uh, to watch once, especially if you like any kind of sci-fi or fantasy. You'd be fine watching this once. I will say the um, the character of Maestra Maestro, whatever his name is, who's uh, played by Bull Shannon. There, um, he was really good. What a really cool looking character. He has these because he's such a tall freak, right? And he has these giant hands his hands are huge and he has long fingernails so they look even bigger so his character was really well done like he looked really good there's a pretty good um little article about the film it's actually about a few different um empire picture films uh the article's called uh, i'm sorry the article is from the website bloody-disgusting.com and it's a uh, review, and it's called uh, Blu-ray Review, The Dungeon Master and Eliminators, A Look at the Glory Days of Empire Pictures, since by a guy named Chris Koffel from February 11th, 2016. So it's a decent, it's, or not decent, it's a good article. Um, so have a read at that. It's really short, too, so no big deal. Um So this one, yeah, it's good. It's It's a fun little film, like I say, Short runtime, 70-ish minutes. If you like fantasy sort of stuff at all, you should definitely watch this because it's short enough. It's from the 80s, and everything from the 80s is, is pretty decent, especially like this. Um, yeah, go for it. But, you know, you can watch this one once. Do you know what this is about? Frozen Shogun. What else have you heard? 
They found this man frozen in ice, chipped him out, and sent him to you for an autopsy. Well, it's more than that. Much more. Okay, next one up. Ghost Warrior, 1984. This one was directed by J. Larry Carroll. and stars Hiroshi Fujiko, Fuji, Fujioka and Janet Julian. Um, released uh, March 1st, 1986 in the U.S. and runtime 81 minutes. Here's what the um, summary says on the moviedatabase.org. When skiers in Japan come across the frozen body of centuries-old samurai warrior Yoshimita, scientists secretly whisk the corpse to a high-tech laboratory in California where they bring him back to life. But when Yoshimita escapes into the mean streets of 1980s Los Angeles, his ancient and strict code of honor gets him both into and out of trouble. J. Larry Carroll directs this low-budget action fantasy. Yeah, so the opening scene on this one, um, we see a Japanese warrior. He's on horseback, and um, it's in 1550 or there about that time. And he's trying to rescue a woman who is his wife from uh, a group of, like, thugs on horseback like an army or something like that um she's obviously been captured he's trying to rescue her back i guess from bandits that's what it is um so in the attempt at the rescue he is shot with an arrow and then he falls off this precipice and he smashes through the layer of ice on top of this lake so it's like a frozen lake but now so he's in the water and he freezes right and then so flash or fast forward to uh, the 1980s, so I guess 330 years later, and two Japanese uh, cross-country skiers discover the frozen samurai in like this cave or something somehow. Um, and so his body is inexplicably shipped to a hospital in L.A. Um, where some surgeons and scientists attempt to revive him, and they're successful. So the story is kind of told through, at first, the viewpoint of this research scientist slash journalist. I'm not sure what she is exactly. I think she's a scientist, but um, she's been brought on to by the research team to work with the samurai and get him acquainted or better acclimated with the current time. So the samurai is... Um, you know, he's a man from a more violent and base time. Uh, so he's used to violence and defending himself, but he seems pretty peaceful anyway when he's just in the research hospital. Like he's not, he's not out of control or anything, but some orderly sees his sword and he likes it and he wants to steal it. So he tries to steal it while the guy's sleeping and big mistake. The guy, uh, so the samurai wakes up and, and fights him and kills him. And then um, the samurai actually escapes from the hospital as a result of this. Um, And he wanders around L.A. And he kind of befriends an old man. An old man was being harassed and, like, robbed by some street toughs. So the samurai kind of rescues the old man and he kills some of the street toughs. And um, eventually there's a chase. They go after the samurai because they want to recapture him, right? So he eventually flees to the countryside. And then what we get in the final scene, like in the, in the big showdown, um, the samurai is on horseback and he's following a group of police officers who have captured the research scientist, who's a female. Um, so it's kind of a mirror of this, the opening scene of the movie when the bandits had his wife. And he was on horseback and he was kind of um, stalking them in order to try and get an opportunity to, to rescue her back. So same thing's happening here. So this, uh, the samurai, he tries to rescue the female research person back who's kind of like a friend to him. And um, he gets shot and he falls into a river. And so it's the same idea except it's not frozen because it's L.A. and it's like summertime. Um, and that's it. That's the end of the movie. So, yeah, nothing. It's, it's okay. It's not bad. 
there wasn't there wasn't much to it really. Like it didn't it didn't do a lot for me. You, you know, you think of it as oh, it's a samurai and he's in L.A. in a different time, so it's a fish out of water story, right? Yeah, sort of, but it's not really humorous like a fish out of water story. Like it and it's um, it, all these movies seem to have like there there's their fantasy underneath it, so it's not like your typical fish out of water story. Like, um, I don't know, some guy goes to work with his, uh, with his, in his father's company and, uh, he's, he's really like a, a loose cannon and they're all stuffy there. No, it's not like that. Like he's a samurai and he's in LA at 300 years into his future. And, um, I don't know. It's just not, it's not humorous. I, I don't know what the point to it was. It was, um, it was okay, but you, you could watch it once or even skip it. It would be fine. I'm not sure what sort of profound thing they were trying to say as well, but having the same scene play out at the beginning of the movie and at the end, um, I guess it ties it together, but it doesn't it doesn't seem to signal anything else. You, if you remember as well, they did kind of the same thing in The Alchemist. They had the, the scene at the beginning, and then stuff happens throughout the movie, and then they basically just replayed that scene at the end. Um, so a little technique there. But I'm just, I'm not sure what that's supposed to mean or if I'm supposed to take something away from that. Is that who I think it is? Toshiro Mifune. I told you this place was hot. Anyways, um, yeah, so what's the rating? Like I said, you could watch it once. You could even skip it. It wouldn't be a big deal. Okay, next up, wonderful film, Trancers, 1984, directed by Charles Band. Uh, starring Tim Thomerson, Helen Hunt, and Michael Stefani. Released May 22nd, 1985 in the U.S. and runtime, nice trim 76 minutes. Last January, I finally singed Martin Whistler out in one of the Rim Planets. Since then, I've been hunting down the last of his murdering cult. We call them trancers, slaves to Whistler's psychic power. Not really alive, not dead enough. It's July now, and I'm tired. Real tired. So here's a summary from Wikipedia. Jack Death is a police trooper in the 23rd century who has been hunting down Martin Whistler, a criminal mastermind who uses psychic powers to turn people into mindless trancers and carry out his orders. Death can identify a tranced individual by scanning them with a special bracelet. All trancers appear as normal humans at first, but once triggered, they become savage killers with twisted features. Uh, before he can be caught, Whistler escapes back in time using a drug-induced time-traveling technique. Whistler's consciousness travels down his ancestral bloodline, arrives in 1985, and takes over the body of a Los Angeles police detective named Weisling. Once death discovers what Whistler has done, he destroys Whistler's body in the future, effectively leaving him trapped in the past with no vessel to return to, and chases after him through time the same way. Death ends up in the body of one of his ancestors, a journalist named Phil Defton. With the help of Phil's girlfriend, a punk rock girl named Lena, Death goes after Whistler, who has begun to trance other victims. Whistler plots to eliminate the future governing council members of Angel City, that's the future name of Los Angeles, who are being systematically wiped out of existence by Whistler's murder spree of their ancestors. Death arrives too late to prevent most of the murders and can only safeguard Hap Ashby, a washed-up former pro baseball player who is the ancestor of the last surviving council member, Chairman Ash. Death is given some high-tech equipment, which is sent to him in the past. His sidearm, which contains two hidden vials of time drugs to send him and Whistler back to the future. And a long second wristwatch, which temporarily slows time, stretching one second to ten seconds. The watch has only enough power for one use, uh, inexplicably, uh, but he later receives another watch. During the end fight with Whistler, one of the drug vials in Jack's gun breaks, leaving only one vial to get home. Jack is forced to make a choice. Kill the innocent Weisling, who is possessed by the evil Whistler, 
or use the vial to send Whistler back to 2247, which would strand Jack in the present. Jack chooses to inject Weisling with the vial, saving the lieutenant's life but condemning Whistler to an eternity without a body to return to. Jack decides to remain with Lena in 1985, although observing him from the shadows is McNulty, his boss from the future, who has traveled down his own ancestral line, ending up in the body of a young girl. So here's a little bit of Wikipedia about the uh, critical response. So on Rotten Tomatoes, the film has an approval rating of 83%, um, based on reviews from six critics, and Variety described it as having a similar premise to The Terminator, but falling uh, short of that film. Kevin Thomas of the Los Angeles Times instead called it a textbook example of efficient, effective exploitation filmmaking. And Neil Gaiman reviewed transfers for his Imagine magazine and stated that funny comic book and fun, I enjoyed it immensely. I was with Van Zandt when it happened. The man simply vaporized, as did his poor children and grandchildren. How do you know Whistler's location? We monitored a line disruption in Los Angeles, December 1985. Van Zant, Ash and I all had ancestors in the city then. As did Whistler, and yourself, of course. Me? Yes. Philip Deathlin, a journalist. He'll be transferred to his body, allowing you to search for Whistler. There were millions of people in L.A. We've traced Whistler's ancestral line. He's using the body of a man named Weisling. There is a minor complication. Weisling is a police detective. You call that minor? Yeah, so I love this film. Um, I thought it was really good. It had a really noir kind of feel to it. So at the beginning, the opening scene, um, Jack Death in the future goes to um, like a diner. And it's got a very, like, 80s feel to it, except that his car is like a flying car or something like that. So um, it seems like it's from the future. But once he gets in the diner, it's like, you know, you get coffee, everybody's smoking cigarettes. Well, it's just him and one other guy. They're like, he's a dirty trucker-looking guy. And, you know, they're they're cooking bacon and eggs and stuff. And everybody's, well, they're, they're smoking. And it just feels like a normal diner from the 80s. But it's the future. So it had a good noir feel. Also... When he went back to 1984, it definitely had noir feel, like a, like a neon noir feel. Because he's in a city running around with Helen Hunt at night. Um, so they're riding like mopeds because it's in, uh, or what, what do you call it, Vespa? They're like Vespas. And they're riding around um, in, in L.A. It's kind of cool. Um, all right. So Tim Thomerson, he was awesome. He was really good. Um, he played the role really well because he's kind of like a, he's gruff. And he looks like he's kind of like a tough detective kind of guy. So he played that really well. Helen Hunt, uh, she looks super young in this. She must be in her early 20s. She looks really good. Um, and she sounds young too. Um, anyways, she has kind of like, her part's like secondary, but um, she was good. She had a real appeal. Like she's kind of jumps off the screen. She's a bit electric in it. And then this Michael Stefani. Um, I think I read that he's... Um, he was like a soap opera actor, and I think this might be his only movie, but he was really good. I thought he played the villain really well. He didn't have to say much. I, I think he only spoke a couple lines in the movie, but he made a lot of like villain kind of faces, I guess because he's a soap opera guy, so he knows how to make dramatic faces. Um, but I thought he was a really good character. And um, I really like the the premise of this film, like the... I guess you could say like the mechanics of it, not the premise. The The premise is fun, but I mean like I like the mechanics of it where um, the idea is like you're going back in time to kill the ancestors so that the people aren't alive in the future. And the review is right. It is, that is a very Terminator. They stole that kind of idea from Terminator, which is fine, but they put their own spin on it. It's not completely ripped off from Terminator. I mean, he's trying to kill the ancestors of council people and this one's different in that in Terminator, when they sent um, when they sent the guy back in time to uh, to help, it's the actual physical guy who went back in time. In this movie, when they go back in time, it's just their their personalities. It's like their 
I don't know. There's it's like they they believe in this mind body split. So it's like their mind that goes back and it occupies the physical body of their or someone in their ancestral line. So that's a that's a cool idea. I mean, you know, whatever. Anyways, it's um it's good because the actor in the future in one case the, the his cop buddy, Thomerson's cop buddy is like his boss. He occupied it was a different actor in the past because when he went back into the past he occupied the body of a little girl so they're completely different actors whereas tim thomerson he was the actor for the future and when he went to the past it was him as well they just made him look a bit different um which is really kind of a cool effect so yeah all around it's a good movie i mean it's a b movie it feels kind of like a b movie there's a bit like like the the lighting's not great and some of the shots look kind of cheap and the audio is pretty bad throughout, but but it has a great feel. It's it's well done. Totally worth a watch. And it's a trim 76 minutes. Like, definitely worth watching. Up next, something not worth watching. The child had been saved, so it seemed. And I vowed that he would never know the evil from whence he was spawned. And when his father finally died a horrible death, I felt sure that the curse had passed forever. I still can't believe you inherited this place. I know. Me either. I suppose we'll just have to get used to the good life. Ghoulies from 1984. Director Luca Bercovici. Actor Peter Lapis, Lisa Pelican, yeah, a bunch of other people. I, oh, Maris, Mar, Maric, Mariska Hergate, she's from the CSI. She's kind of milfy now. Anyway, she was like 18 or 19 in this, so she's it's like her first role. She's super young. Yeah, she is the daughter of Jane Mansfield, so that's something. And her father was a bodybuilder name uh mickey hargitay so that's really weird and interesting um so what else we got in this uh yeah there's nobody else of note i mean there's jack nance is in it i don't he's been he's like a character actor he's been in a a few movies i can't think of what he's been in right now but um i've definitely seen him in some stuff oh yeah he was um his big breakout thing was um oh yeah he's a david lynch guy he was in Eraserhead. That was his big role. And I guess he has a small role in Dune. He was in Blue Velvet, um, Twin Peaks, Wild at Heart, Lost Highway. Oh, yeah, it's, it's all Lynch. <laughs> I guess he's probably done some other stuff, too. Oh, yeah, he's done a lot of other things, too. I just I haven't seen much of this stuff. Um, what else? The Hot Spot. I haven't watched that yet, but I have it. Uh, City Heat, 1984. I have that. It looks terrible. I haven't watched it yet. Oh, he did a movie called Hammett. I guess it's about Dashiell Hammett. I'd like to see that. All right. So um, released January 18th, 1985. Runtime, 81 minutes. Uh, just about the best thing going for this movie was the runtime. It's a crisp 81 minutes, but um, it was terrible. I was really like shocked at how bad this movie was because I think... I get sold a lot on movie posters, and the movie poster for this movie is the little ghoulie coming out of the toilet seat. And I remember when I was a little kid, um, that was so intriguing. I thought, oh, that looks like a super cool movie. And I don't know whether I saw it when I was a kid or not. Presumably I did, but I couldn't remember it at all. And I just, I bought it recently. I bought Ghoulies 1 and 2 in a, it was a cheap DVD. So, um, and when I watched it, I, I couldn't believe how bad this movie was. I would put this in, like, my top, 25 worst movies like and when i say worst movies i mean like movies that you've heard of that are bad um this is right up there along with every rock hudson movie so i'm going to read from wikipedia here ghoulies is a 1985 american horror comedy film directed by luca Bercovici in his directorial debut and co-written with producer jeffrey levy it stars Peter Lapis, Lisa Pelican, Michael Debar, Jack Nance, Scott Thompson, and Mariska Hergate in her film debut. Plot. During a ceremony with a satanic cult, Malcolm, the leader, is about to sacrifice his child named Jonathan Graves 
when his mother, Anastasia, places a talisman around the neck uh, that shocks Malcolm. He orders a participant named Wolfgang to take the child away and sacrifices her instead. At some point, Malcolm died and the cultists disbanded. 25 years later, an adult Jonathan and his girlfriend, Rebecca, inherit his late father's estate where they find several books on magic and a basement full of occult paraphernalia. When they later throw a party and invite their friends, Jonathan recruits them to perform a ritual in the basement for fun. Everyone leaves when nothing happens, but a small creature begins to materialize in the basement. The next day, Jonathan tells Rebecca of his decision to quit college and work on the estate instead, to which she expresses concern. While cleaning up the house, Malcolm's ghost influences Jonathan to go into the basement to perform another ritual. Rebecca's concern grows when Jonathan refuses to eat, explaining that he is fasting. That evening, he conjures several creatures called ghoulies. This is like 30 minutes into the film, by the way. You don't even like really see the ghoulies until like 30 minutes into the film. And proclaims himself as their master demanding them to hide their existence from everyone but him. One day, Rebecca comes home to find Jonathan performing a ritual, much to her shock. He explains that he is trying to learn about the parents he never knew and promises to stop his behavior. While they both lay in bed, a ghoulie secretly draws an occult diagram under their bed, um, which prompts Jonathan to chant in another language, and a furious Rebecca leaves him. Jonathan summons two dwarves named Grizzle and Greedy Gut to his service who promise to give him everything he desires. As a side note, I actually like the uh, uh, the two dwarves. They were pretty cool. Um, they explain that he must perform a dangerous ritual with seven other people to obtain the knowledge and power he seeks. Later, Rebecca returns and asks Jonathan to leave with her, but he refuses. Then he reveals his glowing eyes to her and she runs away but the dwarves bewitch her to return to Jonathan. He invites his friends and bewitches them to participate in the ritual. As Jonathan chants, Malcolm is resurrected from the grave. After the ceremony, Jonathan's friends remain oblivious and are invited to stay the night. Malcolm proclaims himself the real master to the ghoulies and dwarves and commands them to kill the group. Meanwhile, Jonathan apologizes to Rebecca and breaks the spell by placing the talisman around her neck, but she falls into a deep sleep. She eventually wakes up to see Jonathan in a trance and runs away. After she removes the talisman around her neck, the ghoulies attack her and she falls down a flight of stairs. Jonathan brings her to the basement to resurrect her, where he finds the dead bodies of his friends underneath sheets. Malcolm appears with the dwarves, revealing that he used Jonathan to resurrect him in order to capture his youth and sacrifice him. As a battle ensues, Malcolm resurrects Rebecca to distract Jonathan, but the dwarves alert him of the trap. Wolfgang appears with his own magical powers and fights off Malcolm. The house begins to crumble, and Wolfgang defeats Malcolm before they both disappear. Jonathan's friends and Rebecca are resurrected, and they escape to drive away as the dwarves watch. Riding with Jonathan and Rebecca, Mike asks about what happened, but Jonathan assures him it's over. However, Mike is alarmed when the ghoulies rise behind him. Oh, man, this movie. This is such a slog. It was like that, that summary I just read. Like, what a giant slog that summary was. It's a really confusing plot, but basically, Jonathan, his dad, was an occultist guy, and he, he died in a ritual, and now he's from beyond the grave. He's trying to re recapture his own power, like, to to come alive again and, and take over power. And he's doing it through Jonathan. And the ghoulies play such a minor role. Like, I, the movie's called The Ghoulies. You think it's about them. But they're barely in it. Like, barely. It, it just seems really silly. It's like, it was clearly like, the little creatures were cute and ugly. And um, you could tell they really wanted to do a movie based on these, but they just didn't have a good story. So they just made this ridiculous story um, and then the ghoulies are just just kind of jammed in there. Here's a little bit uh, about the critical response as indicated in Wikipedia. And this is very telling. This, this will back up what I'm saying. Um, Vincent Canby of the New York Times dismissed the film as a cut-rate gremlins. 
with unexceptional performances and a lot of badly simulated gore. Variety wrote that the film has a quaint corniness about it, as if it were a cheapy horror movie from the 1950s. Special effects and production values are mediocre, which in this case is part of the fun. Michael Wilmington of the Los Angeles Times wrote, Cinematographer Mark Alberg contributes eerily lit camera work that occasionally achieves surprising atmosphere and delicacy. And John Carl Buschler's creations, the ghoulies themselves, foul reptilian little beans coated with some obscene glittering mucus-like moisture, have a certain nauseating charm. From there, however, it's a steep downhill slide. Kim Newman of the Monthly Film Bulletin called it an unashamed rip-off which contrives to ignore its obvious inspiration, Gremlins, and comes up with yet another prime example of the comic bookish vitality, wit, and simplicity which has become band's trademark. On review aggregator websites Rotten Tomatoes, the film holds an 8% approval rating based on 13 reviews. 8%! That's terrible. Uh, it is bad. It's a seriously bad film. Um, I don't know what the timeline was. I'm sure if I looked hard enough, I could find it about ghoulies and gremlins. But based on a lot of the Charles Band films, it seems like they take a similar idea. They take their idea from their movies, sometimes from another movie that was popular, and they try and do it with a, with a bit of a spin. So example would be Trancers that we just talked about. Like it's it's clearly got a lot of um, similarities to Terminator, um, but they put their own spin on it and it's kind of fun. So presumably the same thing is happening here with Ghoulies where they looked at Gremlins or the idea for Gremlins and they were like, oh, well, we'll, we'll do something similar and put our own spin on it. But that being said, I didn't look closely at the timeline. So I, don't, I think these two were a little more simultaneous than that. So it may have borrowed some things from Gremlins somehow, but I'm not I'm not entirely sure that Gremlins came out first, um, or at least started production first. Anyways, but that's just something to think about, is that that does seem to be part of the way Charles Band films operate, where they, they take a film that was mainstream and popular, and they kind of read, they take some plot ideas, and they make their own version of it. So anyways, you can skip this one. It's a terrible film. So next one up, Savage Island. Speaking of terrible films, Savage Island, 1985. Director, Ted Nicolau. Actors, Linda Blair, Christina Lay. Released September 1st, 1985. Nice crisp runtime, 79 minutes. I was your slave, Mr. Luker. Me and a hundred other women down in South America digging up your precious emeralds with our bare hands. I don't know what you're talking about. I procure my emeralds through middlemen. Middlemen who run the prison and promise inmates shorter sentences in exchange for hard labor. What they don't tell you is that one week on your emerald island is like a thousand years in the shittiest South American hole. You're a raving lunatic. Maybe so, thanks to you. I swore when I got out of there I'd get even. It took me two years to do this. And as of today, no more Emerald Island. No real Wikipedia page for this, but there's the moviedatabase.org. Women who have been captured and sold as slave labor to a South African emerald mine hatch a plan for revolution and revenge. And what's indicated here is that it looks eerily similar to a movie called Escape from Hell from 1980, which was an Italian release. That's what it says in the moviedatabase.org. I haven't seen that film, so I don't know. So what are my thoughts on this one? Yeah, it's um, it's from the women's prison genre. And it's um, it's a women's prison in a hot, sweaty, central-slash-South-American swamp-like island location. There's lots of nudity. And there's a prison break. So this one is actually told through the framing of a flashback narrated by a former prisoner um, who basically this former prisoner, Linda Blair, she at the beginning of the movie, she enters this um, corporate building and 
fights her way upstairs, like she kills the guard at the at the on the in the lobby, and then she gets in the elevator, goes upstairs, and gets into the um, office of the head honcho. He's a big fat capitalist, and he's like smoking a big cigar, light lighting it with a hundred dollar bill or something. And she's basically uh, she has like a machine gun in her under her fur coat, anyways. And she's like, um, she proceeds to tell him the entire movie. Like she tells the whole story to him. So it's told in flashback. But um basically this prison with all these f- females in it and they're being like, you know, abused and tortured and they're half naked all the time. And um they're looking for these diamonds or it says emeralds or something. And these guys come to deliver more prisoners, but secretly they're there to break the girls out. And they do. So there's a big battle. All the guards are killed, most of them anyway. And all the women start to leave um, to escape. And then some of the guards give chase. And um, many of the women are killed along the way, along with the guards. And eventually, like, a couple of them get to the boat and escape. So this woman who, uh, Linda Blair, who is telling the fat capitalist all this, eventually she um, kills him. Or he goes for a gun or something like that. And she kills him. And that's it movie's over like i don't it was it's fine it was clearly exploitive it was just meant to be look we're going to produce a movie in the women's prison genre so they're hot and sweaty lots of nudity that's it yeah this one's a terrible movie you can skip this one also the um the the audio quality is bad the video quality is whatever not not very good but not horrendous um yeah it's just it's not compelling okay what's up next uh, Zone Troopers, 1985. This one was kind of interesting and wild. Like, um, all right, so directed by Danny Bilson, actors Tim Thomerson from Trancers, Timothy Van Patten, Art Lafleur. He was also from Trancers, and he's a he's a regular in some of these films. And Biff Maynard, released October 1st, 1985. Runtime, nice crisp 86 minutes. Anything you ever saw? Compass won't settle. Probably some new crowd secret weapon. Magnetic ray, perhaps? Got a load of Buck Rogers. Could be an iron ore deposit. Where do you figure we are, Sergeant? I don't know. Somewhere behind enemy lines. Zone Troopers is a 1985 American science fiction film directed by Danny Bilson, starring Tim Thomerson. It was filmed in Italy by Empire Pictures, with Charles Band as executive producer. The original music score was composed by Richard Band, who's Charles Band's father, I believe. Plot. In Italy, in World War II, four members, led by the grizzled sergeant, Tim Thomerson, of an American military patrol, is lost behind enemy lines. They discover an alien spaceship that has crash-landed in the woods along with its crew. The alien pilot is dead, and one of the aliens has been captured by the Nazis, hampering efforts of the aliens to return home. A larger Nazi unit with scientific and medical personnel also investigate the crash and seek to capture the alien's technology and use that to win the war. However, the aliens side with the Americans after the Nazi actions to their crew member. Yeah, that's sort of it. I, I don't really feel like that's exactly the plot. but Yeah, what got left out of that analysis was that, um, okay, so the Americans discover the alien ship, and then they they go into it, and they see a dead pilot, and then they're trying to get out of the ship, and they see the Nazis coming, and they actually blow it up. Um, and the reason why... Um, like, later on, they run into the captured alien creature who's with the Nazis, and they help the alien creature to escape. And that's actually why the aliens side with the Americans and help them to escape without getting killed. It's because they assisted the one alien creature, and that alien creature um, convinced her colleagues there, her other alien creature colleagues to help the Americans escape with their lives. Okay, so, yeah, so the, the, the plot's a little bit different than what's in the Wikipedia. It doesn't really matter, but it's the basic idea is there. So this movie was pretty interesting. Um, Tim Thomerson, again, he was really good in this. A um, couple things I really liked about this movie. 
it was the aliens and Nazis genre, um, subgenre. That's a that's pretty rare, or at least aliens and um, and war. That's that was, was kind of cool. So war sci-fi, I don't know something like that. Um, if you have an interest in the subgenre of World War II movies, science fiction, World War II crossovers, I think you should watch this. I mean, it was it was fine. The movie was okay. Um, the ship was amazing. Uh, it looked really good. Like they got inside the ship. It was kind of it was wild. Like it was a totally different design, not something you'd expect. Like they were going down a long corridor. And they had to go through this side panel to get to the cockpit kind of thing. And it was wild. Um, and the alien, the first alien they encounter, the one that was captured by the Nazis, that alien was super cool looking, looked kind of like a big bug. During the night, the alien would create um, an egg. It was like the scaled egg around itself to sleep in it. And uh, so really bizarre stuff like that, which uh, was very cool because um, it was... Not something you would expect. Another part that I really liked was that at the end, um, when you see the rest of the aliens, they look different than the first alien. And then you're, you realize or you're, you're told that the, the first alien, the one that was captured by the Nazis, was, act, was a female. And she looks different from all the males. Uh, the males looked like, just like hairy men, kind of. Um, so that was, that was pretty cool. Uh, yeah, so not, not a bad little film. Um, you know, you could watch this one once, that kind of thing. Or if you really like this genre, this crossover, war, sci-fi, you know, aliens, Nazis, that kind of thing, then go for it. You'll be, you'll be in hog heaven. So that's it for this episode. That's the first seven films that I have. I'm going to make this four parts. So do seven films per part. So hopefully we'll get another part out soon. I don't, probably not, but um, that'll be it. Thank you for listening today. Check out the show notes for this episode or any episode at ptpod.podbean.com. The show notes contain links to all my sources and products that were referenced during the episode. You can write a glowing review of my podcast on iTunes or at Google Play. There are handy links in my website at ptpod.podbean.com. And you can support me on Patreon at patreon.com dot com forward slash pt pod the intro music for today's episode was sweeter vermouth courtesy of kevin mcleod at incompetech.com check out the link in the show notes Thank you.